open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 11. Now, as if you needed any reminders, this past Tuesday marked the official beginning of summer, right? And of course, with the summer solstice comes the American tradition of the summer cinematic blockbuster. Say that three times really fast, right? Now, I was reading somewhere, uh, you know, you guys know I'm a movie buff, and so I was reading about movies. Here, here's an interesting phenomenon. I was talking about this article, the death of the one-off movie or the standalone movie. I want you to think about this. They said overwhelmingly the biggest motion pictures being made now are either prequels or sequels or maybe they're part of a larger uh, movie franchise or cinematic universe. And in fact, um, if you were to choose your favorite movie this summer, chances are it might be one of those, right? Like Top Gun or Jurassic World or Thor or my favorite, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You get what I'm saying, right? Now, personally, let me just say this. I am very partial to prequels, okay? I love getting the backstory to the current story, which I think is a good way to think about what we are doing here this summer as we gather on Sundays to to worship and preach through God's Word. This is really a giant biblical prequel we're doing. See, this past year, we've been in the book of Romans. And one of the things that Paul has been talking about with us is this idea that the Jews, despite being God's chosen people, despite being uh, the heirs of his promises and his covenants uh, under the Old Testament, that despite all of these spiritual advantages, they have in fact fallen away. They've rejected their own Messiah. And as Paul has been discussing this, and we left off there, remember in Romans 9 and 10 at the end of the school year, it feels a little bit like we've walked into the middle of a story, right? Particularly maybe if you haven't grown up in the church or aren't super familiar with Old Testament history, Really hearing Paul talk about this history of Israel can really spark a lot of questions. You know, like, how did we get here? What, what's the backstory, Paul, of, of how the Jews have found themselves in this place? And so what we're doing this summer is that we are unpacking under a series called The Story of Israel. How is it, using the Apostle Paul's words in Romans 9, how is it that God's people have pursued a righteousness not by faith, but in fact, according to the law, how did they miss the gospel? How did they miss Jesus despite everything in the Old Testament pointing to being fulfilled, um, um, shining a light on the coming of the, of the Messiah? What happened? What's the history? What's the backstory? What, what, what are the plot lines? Now, as we have been doing this, as we started this series last week, Understand something, church. We are not doing this as sort of detached academic observers or, or history buffs. We're, we're not maintaining this sort of safe intellectual distance from what we're learning here in the scriptures. Because let's be honest, if we are anybody in this story, who are we? Oh, we're the Jews, spiritually speaking, right? We have all the advantages. Some of us um, have been born and raised in Christian homes. We come in third and fourth and fifth and sixth generation um, families of Christians. Uh, we've grown up in the church. We've gone to youth camp. Our, our, we, our children go to, go, to the, go to Christian schools. We have 
um, incredibly, incredible biblical resources. I mean, like in the palm of our hands in our pockets right now, right, are represented millions of sermons and commentaries and resources. So if there's anybody who understands or should understand the position of the Jews, it's us. And what we really are keenly interested in this summer is that we don't miss the gospel either. Because growing up in a Christian home, growing up in a Christian family, going to a Christian school, going to the youth camps, worshiping at church on Sunday is no guarantee that you won't miss Jesus. You see, what we're going to find out this morning is that, is that the gospel is not a hobby. The gospel is not a nice addendum or appendage that we attach to our lives. The gospel isn't just a tradition. It's not just a set of rituals that we walk through that give us some sort of meaning in our lives. That's when, when, when we view Jesus, religion, the gospel in that way, we are missing Jesus in the gospel. And so this morning, we're going to go back to the very beginning, back to Genesis 11, and begin to understand the gospel according to Abraham. So if you can, I'm going to invite you to stand this morning as we read God's word. We're going to be in verse 27 of chapter 11, and we're going to read in just a little bit into chapter 12. And we're going to hear this morning the story, the beginnings of Abraham, but it's really the beginnings of the church. Verse 27, chapter 11. Now, there, these are the uh, generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren, she had no child. Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Now the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai his wife, and Lot his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, "'To your offspring I will give this land.' So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going towards the Negev. Let's pray. 
Father, we're not just looking back in time 6,000 years ago to um, a random figure that was wandering the, the deserts of the Middle East, Lord. We are, in fact, getting a glimpse at your sovereign grace, raising a man up through his line, through which would come Jesus, so that indeed we would be the recipients of that grace. So Lord, now give us attentive hearts. Lord, as I said before, we, we, we don't want to act like we're just in the middle of a history lesson or lecture. Lord, we want to put ourselves in this story and in doing so, see you. Lord, we ask these things in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may take your seats. Three things I want you to see in the text this morning, and these all have a little sermonic jingle to them, right? So I was talking to Ben Tilson, who's one of our, our interns here, and Ben and I went to the same seminary, and we agreed um, our seminary, RTS, did not teach us this. Okay, but here's the sermonic jingle. So here we go. We'll talk about a starting place. Secondly, sovereign grace. And third, saving faith, okay? Starting place, sovereign grace, saving faith. So let's look at the starting place first. And we are introduced of Abram's family here in verse 27 in chapter 11. And we're going to go ahead and call him Abraham. So we know later Abram is changed to Abraham. Abram means father. Abraham means father of many. And as Tim Keller would remind us, it's the difference in being daddy and big daddy, all right? So I don't know who you are in here, but that's, that's the way it works. Now, we, are, we might be tempted, as we do when we come to genealogies in the Bible, to sort of blow through these as, as sort of irrelevant or just kind of tag along until we get to the meat of the story. But these are very important to attend to because they really show us the desperate state of all humanity at this point in human history. Okay, so let, let's, let's briefly review Genesis 1 through 11, what's happened here. What's happened essentially in Genesis 1 through 11, two things. One, mankind has been plunged into um, depth and despair and separation from God, and into utter um, misery and sin and ruin. This has happened began at the garden, it's continued on through the destruction of mankind um, in the flood. But alongside of this, of mankind sort of being plunged into ruin and sin and misery, is this corresponding promise of God. And it's a promise that he made in Genesis 3.15 to Adam and Eve that through her seed, her line, he was going to raise up a savior. He was going to raise up someone to fix all the mess that they had created and in fact, to redeem the world. And what we see in Genesis 1 through 11 is that God is going to raise up this seed through a remnant, a line. So, so first of all, this, this promise came to the line of Seth. Remember how Cain killed Abel? And so the promise was going to be passed down through Seth and his descendants. Well, from Seth, it's passed down to Noah, right? And from Noah, after they get off the ark, it's passed through his son, Shem. And God's commandment to them was to be fruitful, to, to multiply, to spread a, a knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. And as we read this, 
um, text in Genesis 11, what we see is that Abraham is part of that line. He is a part of the line of Shem. He is, he is, he is the line that God is going to use to raise up this Savior, except there's a huge problem. And Genesis 11 is, a, is, is meant to depict the darkness that sort of has descended, okay, over the galaxy, so to speak. Abraham was not following the Lord. In fact, Abraham didn't even know God. As I said last week, he was a moon-worshipping Mesopotamian, and I've asked Joe Haverlock to write a praise and worship song about this, and I think it will be awesome, right? Now, the reason we know this about Abraham um, are, 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 there, there's three reasons, okay? Number one is just the archaeological evidence, okay? So Abraham's hometown, Ur of the Chaldeans, um, excavations have shown that this was the hotbed of pagan idolatrous worship. These folks, again, worship of idols and celestial beings and, and, and orbs and lights, whether it's the sun or the moon or the stars, this wasn't a hobby for them. They built their whole life around it, literally. Their temples, their houses, their sacrifices, their whole communities. communities. They were a polytheistic, primitive culture who worshipped everything, particularly those beings or orbs in the sky, including, and most primarily in this region, the moon. Now, we see how this pagan idolatry had permeated, seeped down into Abraham's family, uh, by looking at the end of chapter 11. It's hard, you can't see it in the English, but it's there in the Hebrew. Sarai and Milcah are likely named, they're most likely named after the progeny of the moon god, who is a very appropriately named sin. Okay, within that great? Okay, so, so we name our kids after family members, ancestors, biblical characters, although I'm still waiting for Methuselah to appear. Anybody, anybody got that one going on? But they did the same thing except they named their children after the, um, the names of these various gods that they worship. In fact, the word Terah, it, it's, it's related to the Hebrew word for moon. Now, those are just a couple of clues as to Abraham's spiritual state, but Joshua 24 leaves no doubts. Okay, listen to what Joshua says. And Joshua said to all the people, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, now here it is, and they served other gods, okay? It cannot be more clear. Abraham is not on a search for God. He's not in a posture towards seeking God. He is just a dude in Mesopotamia doing his thing, practicing the pagan religions of his family members. So it is very fair to say here at the end of chapter 11, now please hear this, that the spiritual line of Abraham is dead. The promise is supposed to come from Seth to Noah to Shem and then down into Abraham's line, but his line is spiritually dead. But we also see, just as problematically, that his line is physically dead. Look at verses 29 and 30. It reminds us that Sarai is barren. Now understand something, when the, when the scriptures say that someone is barren, this is not a young couple who's been married for a year or two, who comes home at Christmas and the parents say, when are you going to have our first grandchild, right? 
This, 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 this is not a couple who's like, you know, we've been, we've been trying to have a, a baby for, you know, for, for a few months or so. This is a prolonged, protracted, entrenched state of infertility. And some of you know exactly what that's like. Some of you have lived that pain, walked that pain. That is Sarah. Her and Abraham have been married, we're not sure exactly how long, most likely decades. And this is Moses' way of reminding us, and this is the way Tim Keller puts it, and I think this is, this is so good, that Genesis 11 is literally the end of the line for the world. It's the end of the line spiritually. It's the end of the line physically. Not just for Abraham, although most certainly for Abraham, but for us. Now, now why is Moses taking this time before he gets to the meat of the story to, to remind us of the condition of humanity? Because it's, it's to help remind us that who we are, who Abraham was, who we are all born as, we are born into an utterly helpless place before God. We're not born with an inclination to choose God. We, we are not born with a measure of grace that we give God a little grace, he gives a little grace back to us. Um, we are utterly lost and cut off from relationship with the God of the universe, and that is a massive problem. See, God has promised that he's going to bless all the nations of the world through this line, but this line is dead. Now, let me just ask you a question before we get moving on to the next point. Where in your life do you feel like you've reached the, the proverbial end of the line? That you just don't see life there. Maybe it's physical life. Maybe it's spiritual life. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's something going on with one of your kids. Maybe it's your, it's your financial life or your career. It, it's a place where all you see is clouds, mist, darkness right in front of you. It, it's, it's impossible to see ahead. It's impossible to see life. If you can put yourself in that spot... That's right where Moses wants us to be here at the end of Genesis 11. Because if you've been a believer for any amount of time, trusting in Christ, walking in Christ, you know that it's at these very moments that God brings us to these places of desperation that we are most acutely aware of how much we need him. We, we are most acutely aware of how much we need his grace. That, that, that when it is darkness all around, we know we can't trust in ourselves, we can't trust in our spouse, we can't trust in our neighbor, we can't trust in our friends. Ultimately, right, our only hope is in God. That's the starting place, not just for Abraham, but for us. Which if you can understand that, then we can be prepared for what we see in chapter 12, verse 1, which is, second point, God's sovereign grace. Now, us pastors are prone to what I call pastoral hyperbole and exaggeration, but I, I think I'm, I'm going to say this in a way that, that avoids that a little bit. I think Genesis 12, 1 
is one of, one of the most important verses in the Bible. Certainly one of the most important verses in the, uh, in the Old Testament. And, and, and let's look at it closely. It's not, in, on the surface, it doesn't appear to say a lot. But, but in other ways, it speaks volumes. You've heard of where Abraham was. Now, what does 12, 1 say? Now, the Lord said to Abram. See, that is an amazing sentence when you think about it. There, there, there is nothing in Abraham's life that is calling out for the grace of God. In fact, everything seems to be just the opposite. Yet, and I love the way John Calvin puts this, and just a heads up, quoting Calvin a bunch today, it just seems right after being at the Reformation tour. There was a pause for Calvin, that's good, okay. Abraham, I love the way he says this, and we should still speak this way. Abraham was plunged into the filth of idolatry. Parents, try that one out at home, right, with your kids, right? Son, you are plunged into the filth of idolatry, okay? The, the, the key point is this, and now, God freely stretches forth his hand to bring back the wanderer. And we have to ask, now, now at this point, what is it that compels God to reach out to Abraham? I mean, surely, Pastor Paul, there, there, there's got to be something in his, his background. There's got to be something that God can foresee that will happen in Abraham's life. But remember, Paul has already answered this question for us, right? What does Paul tell us in Romans 9? Paul tells us in Romans 9, all are perishing, none are seeking after God, yet what? I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. In other words, Abraham is called solely because of God's sovereign electing grace. And this is such a hard concept for us to wrap our minds around, particularly as Americans, particularly as Westerners, because we are so used to awarding things, prizes, based upon personal accolades. So some of you in high school, you might, if you look back in your old high school yearbook, you, you might have something called senior superlatives, right? You know, who's most likely to be elected president? And that guy's in jail. But who, who's, who's, who's the smartest? Who's the prettiest? If you look back at my senior superlatives, the person you will not see there is me. Zero, nada. It's total silence. Now, in Susan's yearbook, which is my lovely wife, it's quite the opposite. Most courteous, friendly, I mean, just all over the place. What's interesting, she came home one day and she was telling her parents, hey, I got these senior superlatives, um, which was no surprise, but then, you know, Specifically, I was friendliest and most courteous. That's what her classmates awarded her, to which her dad said, that's weird. Those are the exact same two superlatives I had when I was your age. Now, we, would, we call this a chip off the old block, right? And, and, and surely, surely, Abraham was just a chip off the old block. He was a chip off the old block, all right. But it was the wrong kind of block. It wasn't a good block. That, that, that's the whole point, right? This is why God had to step in with his sovereign, supernatural, electing grace. 
Paul says it this way in Ephesians 1. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. See, this is, this is not God waiting around for somebody to do something good. This is God having a sovereign plan before the foundations of the world that even though Abraham doesn't even know me, even though he's not seeking me with one molecule in his body, he is, he is a moon-worshipping Mesopotamian, but I'm going to choose him. Now, as God, as we see here how God reveals himself to Abraham through his grace, and just camp out on that verse one, now the Lord said, now the Lord said, what I want you to see is not only the way God calls Abraham an indication of his grace, but the way that he sustains Abraham is also full of, full of grace. That's an important point for us to remember as Christians. We're not just saved by grace, at which time we sort of figure it out on our own. At which time we just kind of grit our teeth and dig in for some obedience. God saved us, but it's kind of up to us to do the rest. Guys, that's not the gospel. Again, quoting Tim Keller here, the gospel is not just the ABCs of the Christian life. They are the A to Z of the Christian life. We're not just saved by the gospel. We actually grow and are changed and are sustained by the gospel. And I want to show you this in the text, okay? So let's look back there just for a second. Remember, right before this in, in Genesis 11, if you turn your page back one, we're not going to look at it specifically, but just to reference, is the story of Babel, or as we say in East Tennessee, Babel, right? Story, power, Babel. Okay, it's Babel, all right? In this, remember the, the context for the story of Babel. So God has wiped out the earth, and Noah and the eight have come off the ark, and God gives them a command. And he says, Noah and sons and wives and children, I want you to spread out over all the earth. I want you to multiply. I want you to set up little worshiping communities. I want you to spread a knowledge of the glory, my glory, wherever you go. Um, I, I, I'm going to establish the rainbow as a sign of the covenant that I'm no longer going to destroy the earth by flood because I, I, I want you to be fruitful, to multiply, to glorify me. And instead, what do we find? That humanity multiplies all right, but they don't scatter. They, 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 they come together in a big clump. They, they, they want to maintain sort of one culture, one language. They, they want to build towers and cities. And, it's, and it's, it's symptomatic of the fact that they don't want to spread over the face of the earth and glorify God. They want to build bigger barns and glorify themselves. They want to have the power, the autonomy, the authority, the kingship. Forget all this glory of God stuff. And what, what do we learn happens in, in Genesis chapter 10? And I, I love the language in Genesis 10 because it talks about how God peered down upon them. I love that language because it's like you peer down at your 
toddler's little tinker toy set or your child's Lego set that they are messing with and you sort of peer down and you look and you kind of got to get down on your hands and knees and inspect it. That, that's the idea, right? And what does it say God does at that point? He literally clears the table. He, 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 he scatters them. He gives them multiple languages, multiple cultures. He says, if you're not going to scatter, I'm going to scatter you, and we are going to, once again, start from scratch. We're going to rebuild this thing. And that's what you see in verses 2 and 3 here of chapter 12. Let's read those. And I will make of you, he's talking to Abraham, a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, it's interesting the way that God says he's going to do this. God says, I'm not going to gather up a mass of people. That would be our strategy, right? And, and try to convert them all at once. God says, I'm not going to do it that way. I'm going to start, wait for it, with one man and one family. And I'm going to build through him one spiritual Lego block at a time. And it's going to be his family, and then his son, and then the brothers, and the patriarchs, and the nation, and in fact, ultimately, the world. Now, we have to ask, why would God choose to do it this way? We don't know, but here's just a conjecture, right? I think there is this sense in which God wants to make it abundantly clear, even to us today, it is he who builds his church. It is he who preserves the gospel. It is not man's ingenuity. It is not man's power. But we are here today, please understand this church, by the sheer grace of God. Humanly speaking, there's no reason we should be here. None. Christians have been exterminated and persecuted over the last 6,000 years. By the way, the beginning of the church didn't happen at Pentecost. The beginning of the church happened right here. And the world has been on a mission in opposition to God to destroy the gospel ever since, to destroy the people of God. But the fact that we are still here that in fact the church is growing and thriving, and I'm here speaking about the worldwide church, is a testimony to the grace of God. But it all started with one man. This is where the church began. Now, it's interesting. I want to point something out before we leave this point. It's interesting what it says Abraham does in verses 7 and 8 to mark his faith. Okay, to mark this fact that God has called him by his sovereign grace, it tells us, in verse 7, that Abraham builds an altar. In verse 8, it also reminds us that this is when Abraham began to call upon the name of the Lord. Now, anytime you see that phrase, particularly in the Old Testament, call upon the name of the Lord, it's a, it's a euphemism. And it means that this is the point in time in human history where Abraham began to, get, to gather together his family, his friends, his, his community, and they began to gather together to worship, to pray, 
to sacrifice, to be the distinct people of God. And in fact, it didn't just happen here. Look at verse 5. Look, it's interesting language, okay? Because it says in verse, um, um, yeah, in verse 5 that they gathered in Canaan with the people that they had acquired back in Haran. Okay, look, look at verse 5. And Abram took Sarah, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. Now, that might be easy to assume. Well, that's talking about servants, slaves. These are people that they bought and sold back in Haran. No, no, that's not the nature of the word. The word literally means more along the lines of conversion. In other words, as soon as Abraham heard the call of God and was transformed by the sovereign supernatural grace of God, what did he do? It's the same thing we've been doing for the last 6,000 years as the people of God, gathering together, coming together. You see, Abraham, from the moment of his conversion, remembered what God had said. Abraham, it's not just about you. It's not just about your family either. I've got a plan to bless and redeem the whole world through this good news. And so Abraham becomes faithful to be a blessing to others. Now, let's be honest, it can be, it can be a very complex equation, right? To, to know what it means to be a blessing, particularly in our current cultural moment. Obviously, many of you, or most of you, probably are very in tune to the Supreme Court decision that came out Friday, overturning Roe v. Wade and the right, quote-unquote, to abortion. Now, there's been a couple of responses. Of course, there's been the praise of God and the celebration of God's grace and blessing, which I think is very appropriate. There's also been a couple of counterpoints or questions that have been thrown out there. What, you may have heard it a couple different ways. One of those is, is well, what's next? Well, what, what, what are Christians to do next? Or you might have even heard, and I think this is even a little more problematic, now the real work begins, right? Which I think at very best is misguided, but at worst is very offensive, and I'll tell you why. Many of you have been doing the work. The work has been going on. I look at this church family and I see how so many of you have adopted, taken care of the least of these in foster care, been guardian ad litems, advocates, volunteering at Women Pregnancy Center, giving of your time and money and resources. And in fact, statistics bear this out. Conservative Christians give, serve, and leverage their lives the most for the least of these as opposed to the rest of the population. It is not even close. It's not even close, statistically. You may say, well, well what, what, what are we to do? We can take a lesson from Abraham here. Just continue to be faithful. Just continue to gather as the people of God. Remember, you can't save the whole world. And God doesn't ask you to save the whole world. What does God ask you to do? Just be a shepherd and steward of the time and resources that he's given you right now. 
What opportunity has God given you right now to honor and glorify him? Guys, let's be honest. That can seem a little daunting when it appears, does it not, that the world, the culture, the country can sort of be arrayed spiritually against the gospel and the church. Guys, it's a reminder that unity and peace in such a climate is not possible apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Apart, we, we, we can have summits, we can have reconciliation meetings, we can have listening sessions, but the fundamental dividing law, dividing wall between mankind is spiritual. And the only ultimately unifying force that brings people together in this broken world is Jesus. And it is the gospel. And so, church, wherever you are, go with the gospel there. And as we do so, we are fulfilling part of this great commission mandate that God gave to Abraham that through your seed, what's the seed? Jesus Christ. Which means that if the world is going to be blessed through you, it's going to be blessed through Jesus, through you. All right, last point. As important as sovereign grace is, what's also important that we understand in this text is the nature of saving faith. So there was starting place, sovereign grace, saving faith. Now, you have, don't have to have been around church too, too long before you get the idea that, that Abraham is a very prominent figure in Scripture, right? He, he, is, he, is, he is the model of faith. In fact, in Hebrews 11, which is the, the Hall of Faith chapter, more space and lines are devoted to Abraham as opposed to anyone else, it's not even close, right? In fact, Paul in Galatians 3.9 calls Abraham the man of faith, okay? Paul doesn't say he is a man of faith. What does Paul say? He's the man, right, of faith. Now, we have to say what made Abraham a, faith, uh, a man of faith because we are descendants of Abraham, not if we are descendants physically, but if we are descendants spiritually, okay? Now, if you, if you grew up in the church in the 1970s like I did, you were subjected to that most um, obnoxious of kid songs, Father Abraham, right? You remember it, okay? The, the, I, see, I see you boomers chuckling, okay? Right arm, left arm, turn around. Guys, that's what happens when burned out hippies who were saved in the Jesus movement write worship songs. That, that, that's what happens, okay? Father Abraham, I'm, I'm Father Abraham. I'm one of them, right? And so are you. Now, how, how is that? Let's do Christ. It's not those, Paul tells us, who are of the flesh of Abraham that are children of Abraham, although you might be. It is those who are children of the promise, who believe in the seed of Abraham, Jesus Christ. So knowing that, I would say it is imperative that we understand the nature of Abraham's saving faith. Because apart from saving faith in Christ, you and I will not be saved. So what distinguishes Abraham's faith? How do, we, how do we define it? That's what we're after here. There's two things I want you to notice here in the text. 
First is God speaking to Abraham. Look at verse 1. Now the Lord God said to Abraham, go. It's an imperative. It's a command. It is absolute. You can't halfway do it. It's, it's, it, it's, a, it's a command. Now I want you to see, though, Abraham's response to this command. And I want you to listen to the words that Moses uses here. Look at verse 4. So Abraham went. Abraham departed. Verse 5. Abraham set out. Okay? Now here's, what again, what Calvin says about faith based on this chapter. And I think this is a great quote. Now, please hear this. Faith is obedience to the bare word of God. The word Calvin uses is actually naked. Okay? Faith is obedience to the bare word of God. God said, I command thee to go forth with closed eyes. And so having renounced thy country, thou shalt have given thyself wholly to me. W-H-O-L-L-Y. In other words, faith is a baseline decision to unconditionally surrender your life to God. You are clinging to his word. You are clinging to his promises. You are clinging to his mercy, to his grace. Biblical faith is saying the, the foundational decision of my life and existence and of whatever I do is that I belong to God. That is faith. Now, let me tell you what I don't think this means or does it mean. That sort of faith does not mean we never disobey. In fact, we can be incredibly disobedient. It doesn't mean that we don't grow discouraged. It doesn't mean that we don't struggle mightily with sin, because we do. It doesn't mean that there is a straight line from us to God at a 45-degree angle that never deviates or goes up in uh, up and down. Case in point is Abraham, by the way, right? Case in point is Abraham. Later we find out that Abraham literally abandons his wife in Egypt for fear of his own life. Abraham sleeps with his concubine because he doesn't trust God to provide an heir through Sarah. In fact, let me say this, and you may have missed it, we even see an instance of disobedience in this text. Look back at 1131. You may have just may have missed it. It says, Terah took his, Abram his son and Lot the son of Aaron, his grandson, and they went together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But listen to this. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Now, we don't know why Abraham stopped on the way. Um, Maybe there was immense pressure from his family. You know, it is interesting. Once his father died, Abraham continued his journey. But even at all those points, what is it that distinguishes Abraham's faith 
even in the midst of his disobedience in sin, I think it's this, is that Abraham listened to God. And even in the midst of his struggle and his sin and his disobedience, there was still a, a fundamental, a foundational orientation in his gut that says, I belong to God. So that when God spoke, and by the way, this is an incredibly gracious thing of God to do, because we said this last week from um, Acts chapter 7, that Stephen says that God literally wrenched Abraham out of Haran. In other words, God gave the call to Abraham to leave his country and to go to Canaan. And even as Abraham is flagging and stumbling and stopping and struggling forward in his disobedience, God reaches down by his grace and wrenches Abraham and gives Abraham the capacity to hear, the capacity to respond, the capacity to orient to God's call. Guys, that is what we call a Christian. So let me just ask you, have you set your course? Have you entrusted yourself wholly to Jesus? And by that, I don't mean are you perfect or are you not struggling this morning? That, that's, that's not the question. The question is, at the end of the day, do you know, no matter what else happens, no matter how much I struggle with this or I struggle with that or I can't see or um, my, my, my spiritual side is dimmed, I know I belong to God. He is my Lord. He is my King and I belong to him. In other words, has your course been set? And there's something else to pull from this text as well, and it's related to this. When it says in 1131, but when they came to Aaron, they settled there. Let me just ask you, where is the but with one T, okay, in your life? Where is the but in your life? See, all of us have some sort of Genesis 1131 moment going on where we've stumbled, we've paused, we've stopped, we've broken down, maybe even we've rebelled. But here is what I surmise about true saving faith at that point. When the, God, when the call from God comes to repent and turn away, to renew your faith, you have ears to hear. Even when you may not want to obey, in your heart of hearts, you're like, but I want to want to obey. See, that was Peter. Lord, <laughs> of course, Lord, I believe, but boy, you better help my unbelief. That's saving faith. See, Abraham, Hebrews 11, 8 says this, By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. Because that's the tough thing about faith. I think every gospel call and the offer of the grace of God needs to come with a truth and advertising label, right? God makes no promises about this life. That's one thing we, we learn in the scriptures over and over again. God gives blessing, absolutely. 
God gives marriage and relationships and kids, but we know that this life is a vaporous mist. We know that it is fragile, unstable, that there is no ultimate place of security to plant our flag or our feet, which is why Hebrews describes Abraham's journey in this way. This is Hebrews 11, 9, 10. It says, by faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. In other words, do you realize Abraham did not inherit one square inch of real estate in his life? Not one square inch. He had to trust in the bare word of God and say, God, I'm with you. I don't know where you're leading. Remember, God didn't tell him which country he was going to. He just said, Abraham, go. I'll let you know when you get there. And guys, that's, isn't that not oftentimes or every time what God calls us to? I don't know what's in front of us, God, but I know you're calling me to follow you. There's no place I would rather be. There's no safer place to be. So church, how are we to follow the example of Abraham? To trust in the promises of God. To trust in his son, Jesus Christ, who is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that will far outweigh anything in this very temporal life. Come to him, trust him, serve him, and trust yourself and your soul to the king who does right by his people every time. Let's pray.